Uh, remember all that excitement last year when we were told that there had been a monumental breakthrough in uh, nuclear fusion research? In its simplest terms, which, to be honest, is all I understand about this issue, and I don't really understand that, uh, is more energy was created by the reaction than was used to create the reaction. First time that had ever happened. So... Uh, where is all this free nuclear energy? Well, it's a long way off still. But, you know, this was an important first step. So where have we gone since then and where do we still need to go? Let's go to class here and take Nukes 101. And to help us understand this, we have Kristen Schell and Ahmed Abdullah, Assistant Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Carleton and Assistant Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Carleton, both of them. Uh, Kristen, Ahmed, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you. Um, why don't we start with you, Ahmed, the breakthrough. Help us understand it a little bit better. We know it was history-making, and we were told with much fanfare how important it was. Just why? What What happened? What was accomplished, and why is that so meaningful? So we have two types of doing this fusion reaction. Magnetic confinement, these are where you store all the uh, plasma into, uh, it, turn it around a torus, basically, or inertial confinement, which is what we've done with this breakthrough, which is where you point a huge amount of lasers onto a small fuel capsule, get it up to really high temperatures, as you would have on the sun, and that stimulates the fusion reaction. Although we've been researching both for 60 years, we've actually been much further along with the magnets than we have with the lasers. And that's why this advancement on the uh, laser side is so exciting. We've actually managed to concentrate enough energy onto this fuel capsule to create a huge amount of energy from the actual fusion reaction. But, Kristen, when we talk about this, and this is all you know, done in a lab and theoretical, it wasn't a huge amount of energy, but it was energy that was generated by the reaction, right? Yeah, that's true. So they... Uh, when the fusion reaction happened, they needed about two megajoules of energy to heat the target or the fuel cell capsule in order to uh, get the small hydrogen atoms to fuse. And we got three megajoules of energy out of that. That's where we're getting that uh, fusion gain or a Q value of about 1.5. So anything above one is considered break even. Yep. So with these lasers, we got 1.5. Uh, but we needed 192 lasers in order to concentrate that energy into the, the fuel capsule. And powering those 192 lasers required about 100 times the amount of the energy that we got out of that reaction. Okay. So we still need a huge amount of energy to uh, create that. Um, okay, so not... not overly efficient by any stretch how does it compare with i mean what we all think of when we think about nuclear energy and we think about you know power plants and all those sorts of things that have been around for a while uh, how does it compare Ahmed? i mean what's the difference between what's happening inside those facilities and this new fusion uh, reaction so there, it's important that we don't confuse the two. They're completely different technologies. Okay. So what we have right now is nuclear fission. We've had it for decades. It's proven. It's reliable. It's clean. That's where you split atoms to make energy. Fusion is, is where you combine smaller uh, nuclei into larger nuclei and make energy that way. Uh, we're much, much less further far ahead with fusion than we are with fission. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Um, what do we need to do to move 
fusion forward, Kristen? Is that something that has there been any strides made over the course of a year? I mean, obviously, this was the starting point. What more needs to happen? Well, a lot more uh, research needs to be done, which is currently happening. We have a, a competitive fusion reactor that's being built in the EU. Uh, that's the magnetic type that Ahmed was talking about. But in order to transition from the science, these science experiments that we've been doing for fusion, to engineering and eventually to a commercial market, there are major risks that the community isn't discussing uh, sufficiently. So we need decisions need to be made in this transition that could have profound and long-lived implications for fusion reactors that are designed decades from now. So we have to be proactive about those decisions and future risks. I think you make such a good point. We're, we often try and regulate after the fact with any kind of new technology and it's trouble. So when you're talking about major decisions and things we need to do ahead of time, what are you looking at? What are you thinking of? So we've got three major problems. You've got economic problems, systemic problems and societal problems. So the economic problems are perhaps the most immediate. Now that we think of fusion more as an engineering experiment rather than just pure science, as we did 20 or even uh, 10 years ago, we need to figure out what a plant, a reactor plant would look like. How do we scale it up? How do we make sure that it doesn't cost uh, uh, suffer from cost over ones and take so long to build as the nuclear fission reactors do. We also need to figure out what to do with the waste. So that's the economic side. How do we make this a practical commercial product? And on the systemic side, we need to figure out where will fusion fit in our energy system. The energy system is changing a lot. Natural gas, carbon capture, hydrogen, renewables, of course, are galloping ahead of everyone. So how do we, where would fusion fit in this horse race? And finally, societal. We really need to figure out, uh, now that public perception becomes an issue as it becomes an engineering experiment, what does the public think of fusion? How do we make sure there are no attitudes that harden or misperceptions that harden? And how do we make sure that the public is engaged and, and informed as this transition occurs? Um, surely we've learned something from our experience with fission and some of those issues that you're talking about. Um, do, are, are there things that we need to avoid that we didn't when we talked about that kind of nuclear energy? Oh, yes. I mean, the parallels are not perfect, but there are parallels. Unfortunately, we're not even learning them with fission, as the new generation of uh, nuclear yeah. fission reactor proves. But we've learned, for example, that uh, these larger reactors aren't necessarily uh, less expensive per unit of output. Maybe going small, turning it into a product rather than a project, could um, ensure that the cost overruns don't happen. We learned that standardization matters, but is really difficult to do, as you would with iPhones or cars. We also learned that societal uh, engagement is so crucial. And yeah. we fail at it as engineers, and we don't need to. We know what the best practices are. We just need engineers who are trained in multiple fields to apply them. Kristen, that's part of it, right? I mean, the public, like you say, societal, but there's a public perception around nuclear energy, and there always has been. Um, how important is it that we get this technology developed? Or like you guys are talking about, you know, in terms of alternative fuel sources or energy sources, whatever you want to call it, this needs to be part of that conversation, right? It certainly does. Uh, as we grow as a, globally as a society, as our population grows, uh, as we need more energy to make more things, we, our energy demands of the future are, are certainly not going down. 
So fusion definitely needs to be uh, part of the conversation, uh, as well as vision and all the alternatives that are on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, can you put a, a guess, a prediction, an estimate as to when we might actually see this, you know, widespread or or more applicable, at least to meeting some of our energy needs? I mean, how far down the road is that before it becomes something we can look to for that? I think we need to be realistic. We've learned that being optimistic, that's actually caused, called optimism bias. Um, being optimistic and expecting fusion to be around by 2030 or 2035 may be imprudent. And, and if you don't get there, people will say you failed, right? Yeah. So we need to be realistic. It's both a marathon and a sprint. Renewables, carbon capture can work in the short yeah. term. That will be the sprint. And then fusion and new forms of fission could be the marathon bit. So 2050 and beyond, we'll still need large amounts, as Kristen said, of low carbon energy. Very interesting conversation. We'll check in with you, too, as we go down the road and maybe get more insight. Uh, great conversation. Thank you so much for being here today.